Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity, entitled Spotlight on New Guidelines to Identify and Manage Aortic Stenosis, is provided by Medtelligence and is supported by an independent educational grant from Medtronic. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. New guidelines on valvular heart disease from the American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology have recently been published. These updated 2020 guidelines provide a great framework for how to manage patients with both asymptomatic and symptomatic valvular disease. This is CME on Reach MD, and I'm Dr. Zim Latib. And I'm Dr. Sarah Konstam from Ann Arbor, Michigan. So let's get started, Sarah. Tell us about aortic stenosis. Uh, how common and how prevalent is aortic stenosis? And why should the average practicing physician really care about this disease? Thank you, Azim. Yes, that's a very good question. Main etiologies that we see are um, most often calcification of a normal trileaflet valve, the congenital bicuspid valve, which we'll obviously see at a younger age, and then rheumatic disease, which we're seeing less and less often in this country, but still um, comes up. And what's pathognomonic for that is really fusion at the commissures with reduced mobility of the leaflets, and that extends into the center of the valve over time. The prevalence really increases sort of for each decade of life. So for people age 50 to 59, we really only see it 0.2% of the time of those the more common etiology is going to be the bicuspid valve. And this goes up. So 1.3% for the next decade, almost 4% for people age 70 to 79. And then by the time people are 80 to 89, it's almost 10% who have AS. Of them, about 75% are going to have severe AS. 25% uh, are actually going to be asymptomatic but with severe AS. And that's important because, you know, at any time they can develop symptoms. There's a very well-known graph that was actually published back in 1968 already um, by Brownwald that shows this long latent period that has no symptoms, but definitely does have hemodynamic consequence, such as myocardial overload. And it's really unclear how long that latent period can go on for. It's obviously pri-variable on many patients, depending on risk factors. But once people develop symptoms, and this really hasn't changed over the decades, there are sort of three cardinal symptoms, angina, syncope, and then heart failure. And they're associated with an average for survival, if we don't intervene, from five years for angina to three if there's syncope, and two at the moment people develop heart failure. So the key is really to identify people um, before they develop flagrant heart failure and have um, a really short survival um, expectation and to intervene before we get to that point. Yes, Sarah, that's really important. We've all been looking at this figure from Braunwell for years and, you know, one of the things I often discuss with my patients is that, sure, we do know that depending on the symptom, your prognosis uh, may differ. But we often, it's hard to predict what the first symptom is going to be or the next symptom is going to be. So a patient who presents with, you know, angina or chest pain, their very next symptom may be sudden death, right? Um, and so when patients develop symptomatic AS, um, I think, you know, what I try and encourage my patients about is that this is a disease that is going to progress and is going to result in, you know, possibly probably death if untreated. Um, 
Do you do anything different with your patients? I mean, how are you convincing your patients when you see them that you know they need to take this more seriously? Yeah, it's an excellent question. And I think the stages um, in the new guidelines actually are really beneficial um, to sort of apply to patients. And what they've done differently um, and that I really like is sort of identified um, stages based on risk. So stage A is people who don't actually have any sort of quantifiable AS. So their valve area is typically still above two centimeters squared, but they're at risk for it. So they either have a bicuspid aortic valve or they have some degree of aortic valve sclerosis. And in them, I'll monitor them with echo, you know, probably depending on if there's any symptoms or any other reason to get it every three to five years, but probably more in the range of three years. The next stage uh, is stage B, where the AS has clearly progressed, and that can include both mild to moderate um, AS, so anywhere from a valve area of two down to one. And again, all these are really diagnosed on good echo measurements. Typically, the valve peak velocity at this point is still you know, below four meters per second. But people can have some other symptoms. They can have diastolic dysfunction. They'll often have LVH, but their EF will still be normal. Once they progress to the severe stage, um, that's either labeled C if they're asymptomatic or D if they're symptomatic. And the D stage is really what is much more detailed in these new guidelines. And they really look at a combination of EF, flow, and gradient. So if we take a better look at this D stage, D1 is really our classic, what we consider severe AS based on high gradients across the valve. So a valve area that's less than one, peak velocity that's four meters per square or greater. And these people are going to have the cardinal symptoms. The next stage is D2, which is interesting in that, you know, we've seen this a lot. People have low gradients across the aortic valve, but they also are in a low flow state due to a reduced cardiac output and decreased EF. These are the people that, you know, typically in the past when TAVI was really not an option, we would try and do a low dose dobutamine stress to see what would happen with these gradients across the aortic valve to distinguish the AS they had from, you know, true AS and pseudo AS, but really also to see if there was some augmentation in their cardiac output because it pretended really poorly for surgery if they couldn't augment their cardiac output. So, Azim, a question for you is, in this new era with TAVR, is there still a role for this dobutamine stress test? Do you see them in patients? Do you find them useful? For those just tuning in, you're listening to CME on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Azim Latib. And here with me today is Dr. Sarah Constam. We're discussing the new guidelines to manage aortic stenosis. Sarah, that's a great question. And, you know, I've been surprised that as, you know, in my own structural heart program, as it grows and we see more patients, how often we are referred these patients with low flow, low grade in AS. And I think really, you know, the paradigm has shifted, um, as we'll see later when we talk more about how the guidelines uh, have shifted as well. But I think having a less invasive option has really changed my approach to these patients. So, you know, considering how minimally invasive TAVA is and how low risk it is in well-selected patients, I must admit, I've stopped doing dobutamine stress echo. And I now, you know, will send that patient directly for TAVA. 
the group that I really struggle with, and I'm hoping you can shed some light, are the ones who also have this low flow, low gradient AS, but have a normal ejection fraction. Yeah, that's a good point. So that's what they call the D3 subcategory. So these are patients who indeed have a normal EF, but interestingly have a sort of paradoxical low flow state. So if you look at their stroke volume indexed to their body surface area, the cutoff typically is under 35. There's some dispute whether for women you would lower that a little bit. And with that, they have a low gradient across their valve. And it's an entity that we see more commonly in women, interestingly. Um, it goes hand-in-hand hand with small LV cavity sizes, usually LVH, diastolic dysfunction. So the idea is really that despite a seemingly normal ejection fraction, they really do have a low cardiac output, and with that, low gradients across the valve. Yeah, Sarah, I think the, these new guidelines have been great in, in really stressing the importance of really one, a multidisciplinary heart team approach, you know, so getting together in a team to, you know, look at the imaging, have the non-invasive cardiologist, have the heart surgeon and the interventional cardiologist look at these patients together, how to use uh, echocardiography, which is so non-invasive to evaluate these patients, but also, you know, involving the patient in the, in the shared decision-making and, their symptoms and how their valve disease is making them feel. Um, I think it would be great, you know, for you to share really with um, our audience what the new class one indications are for treatment of severe AS. Absolutely. So obviously the first one is the one we classically have always thought of. So people who are um, symptomatic, they have severe high gradient AS, either by history or, you know, Sometimes people will do exercise testing if they're not necessarily symptomatic due to a fairly sedentary state. The second one is asymptomatic patients, but still with severe high-gradient AS, but whose EF has decreased below 50%. The third one is really the patients we just talked about, the ones who are symptomatic. They have low flow and low gradient. So because they're also low flow, they, their EF typically is below 50%. And then this last group of difficult to sort of interpret patients who are symptomatic and they're sort of in this paradoxical low flow state. But once we find that AS is the most likely cause of symptoms, that's a class one recommendation. Azim, can you speak a little bit about uh, once you get these patients, what is helpful in terms of workup that is done um, outside of your institution? What, what sort of presents or what makes a really good referral that you can, you know, take the information from the referring cardiologist. What do you sometimes add on at your own institution um, to really see if there are good candidates for TAVI? Yeah, it's a great question, Sarah. And, you know, working, both of us work in, you know, tertiary referral centers where we get sent patients from all over in the community. Um, and one of the things I, I'm hoping with this program is to, that we reach more of our community colleagues out there um, to when they see these patients to send them to us. And usually all I need to start the process with a patient is, you know, a good clinical history and examination that the patient does have symptoms related to their valve disease and a good echo documenting, you know, all these features you, you went through, their gradients, the ejection fraction, their velocities, and whether they have other valve disease. I think that's usually the starting point. From there onwards, 
probably the next most important test we need and that I do is a CAT scan. And this is a cardiac CT to look at their heart, to look at their vasculature. So we really scan the heart. It's a gated CT scan to look at the heart and to look at their annulus and valve dimensions as well as their coronaries and then their whole vascular tree. And that has really become, for me, the most important test that we do in these patients because with this one test, we can often make a very good assessment about what is the best way to replace this patient's aortic valve. Would that be surgically or would that be with a transcatheter technique? We then, depending on the patient, will also do you know, a left and or right heart catheterization to look at their coronary arteries, to look at the pressures in their heart. But it's really the evaluation now has gone into, you know, are they good candidates for transcatheter approach versus a surgical approach? So I don't know, Sarah, if I, I go back to you, when you see the new guidelines and you, for aortic valve replacement, what is it that strikes you as the non-invasive clinical cardiologist as the biggest change? Um, I think that the change that really has made me as well as many of my patients most excited is seeing this age um, requirement drop pretty significantly. So now anyone really over age 65, um, even if, you know, just besides their age, there's no other significant risk factors um, can be considered for a TAVI. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great segue into maybe showing uh, this figure from the new guidelines, which is really a flow chart looking at how we evaluate now patients with aortic stenosis. And really the whole issue of risk is just about finding those patients who are really at extreme risk or prohibitive surgical risk where they may not benefit from any therapy and maybe, you know, palliative treatment may be indicated. And really what it does is it divides patients based on their age and life expectancy into three groups. There are patients who are less than 65 years of age, who are low risk, who have no comorbidities, in whom surgical aortic valve replacement has a class one indication. And many of these patients are probably patients who may end up with a even a mechanical aortic valve that will last their entire lives. The minute we go up into 65 or older, we then divide patients into two groups. Patients who are greater than 80 now have a class one indication for transfemoral Tavi. And this has really been, a, I think, a big change. The new guidelines actually give a lower indication to surgery for patients who are above 80 years of age, and this is irrespective of their risk. The really interesting group, and this is the part that, you know, I think both, like you mentioned, even my patients are so excited about because they come to my offices now and asking about it, are the patients who are between 65 and 80 years of age, where both surgical and transcatheter aortic valve replacement both have a class one indication and this brings us whole back into the whole part of shared decision making with the patient and the importance of a multidisciplinary heart team evaluation of these patients that's great thank you this is very helpful and i think it's a very exciting time to be practicing cardiology in let me just summarize, because I think we're coming near the end, the key sort of highlights from these guidelines. So as we heard, obviously, the evaluation by the multidisciplinary valve team is really a, a key addition 
The second real sort of interesting expansion of the stage is looking at the symptomatic stage based on gradient flow and then the EF. The intervention for the severe AS is based on really having symptoms or uh, an indication of LV systolic dysfunction, that's class one. And then obviously the decision between SAVR and TAVI. So those are my my summary points. Anything that you want to add, Azim? Thanks, Sarah. My final take-home messages are really how the guidelines have changed, taken risk out of it, and really looked at age and shared decision-making. So the fact now that, you know, both... <clears throat> TAVI and surgical aortic valve replacement are considered both class one for patients who are 65 to 80, irrespective of surgical risk, and how patients that are over 80 now have a class one indication for TAVI, for me, is certainly impactful and will allow more patients to have a less invasive approach to treating aortic stenosis. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. So I really want to thank our audience for listening in. And thank you, Sarah, for joining me and for sharing all your valuable insights. It was really great speaking with you today. Thank you very much for having me. It was great speaking to you as well. You have been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Medtelligence and is supported by an independent educational grant from Medtronic. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to ReachMD.com slash Medtelligence. Thank you for listening.